Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Yeah, we got some new awkward family photos. And they're better ones, too. Like, if you were here early, you, if, you do, if you weren't here early, you missed the little ditty they did at the beginning. And then there was a whole bunch of pictures cycling through from you guys sending your awkward family photos. So thank you for doing that. And also, you know, I just got to brag on Dalton. You know, here's this guy's 18 years old. He's over here playing the bass, like nails every single note, gives it his best, and then comes over here and does the, it's his first time doing the little greeting. And, and the reason that we have, we are a church that's constantly trying to build and develop leaders. And so we're always challenging them. And so we're like, okay, we think you're ready. Here you go. Go up and greet everybody. And he's like, ah, uh, you know, and, but he does great. He does great, and, and, and I, we are a church that values multiplication. We value training leaders, and we value young people stepping in and taking big chunks of ministry. Our, our sound guys, guys sitting back in the board, I don't know how, but he's on, he, I, he can't vote or die for his country or anything. Um, so that's, a, that's awesome, too. You can clap for that. I just love it. I love having a church where we're just, you know, because so many churches, the, the opinion that the young people have is, oh, this isn't for you. You have to come here and just sit and be quiet while the, the old people do their thing that they really want. And it's like, no, 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 no. This church is about raising up young leaders. And so it just fires me up. And I just thought I'd just vamp on that for a second. I do want to also tell you, and I dropped this before I had a chance to tell you, this, you have reflection questions that you can um, look at later on because we're not doing connection groups right now because it's, you know, the holiday season with Christmas and New Year's. There it goes. And, um, but you can look at the questions for reflection and you can uh, spend some time thinking about those later on so that way the sermon will hopefully stay with you in some measure during the week. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 18. And as you're turning there, We've been in our Awkward Family Christmas series, and we've been talking about different characters in the Christmas story, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then last week we talked about the shepherds who kind of got their own group, you know, uh, uh, spotlight on them last week. And today we're going to talk about Joseph. And if you think about it, Joseph is the ultimate supporting actor in the whole Christmas thing, right? Because the focus of Christmas is really first and foremost on Jesus, but then right behind that is his mother Mary, and even the angels and the wise men and the shepherds get, you know, kind of like dialogue parts in this whole thing. And in Joseph, though, he's there, he's not really thought about too much. In fact, I don't know if there's any dialogue recorded at all of Joseph saying anything in the Bible. So he's like, he's there because he's got to be. And it's funny though, because he's not really thought about too much. Even our Catholic friends who pray to Mary and they make statues of Mary. And there's people who have claimed to see the Virgin Mary, like in a piece of toast, you know, right? They eat a piece and you can, you can see this. I eat a piece of toast like that. There's the Virgin Mary, right? Or something falls on the ground. It's the Virgin Mary. And no one does, does that with Joseph, right? No one like eats a half of a cheeseburger and says, it's Joseph. I see the apparition of Joseph. Like nobody ever does that. 
In fact, if you Google Virgin Mary sightings, you get all of these crazy pics of like clouds and like weird kind of things. But if you Google Joseph sightings, it comes up Tyler Joseph sightings, who's the guy from 21 Pilots. So like, Joseph just isn't really thought about very much. Most people presume that he died relatively early in Jesus's life. I mean, obviously we know he at least lived until Jesus was 12 because Jesus kind of ran away from home and there's this whole scene where they go find him, like everyone's looking for you. Um, he didn't really run away from home, but he kind of got lost and he was in the temple and whatever else. And I think they left without him. And so they found him and Mary and Joseph and Joseph is still in the scene there. But at some point he dies and there's no record of his death. It's just like, it just wasn't really important. And so um, while that may be true, that Joseph kind of plays this supporting background character in the whole Christmas story. There is one thing about Christmas that is unmistakably clear, and that is this. It is a no-go without Joe. <laughs> That's a pretty good title, right? That's a good title. I came up with that myself. And if, you know, in other words, if Joseph hadn't been there, if he hadn't done his job, if he hadn't said yes to God, then things would have turned out much differently in the story of Christmas. That Joseph was a vital character, albeit a background one. And so as we read this passage, we're going to see that Joseph finds out for the first time that not only is his wife pregnant and not by him, but rather by God, that's kind of a weird mixture of emotions, right? Like, who did this? Oh, you, right? God, okay. So now what do I do? And he's going to be asked to, by God to raise a child that isn't his and bear a consequence that he didn't create and ultimately reorder his entire life around this child's safety and security and identity. And so the more that... I was thinking about Joseph, the more I'm like, I really like this guy. And so hopefully as we kind of dive into this guy's life a little bit, that you will like him too, that you'll just have this profound respect for him and then what we can learn from him in the process. And so this is the story from scripture and then we'll pull out um, what we believe that the scripture is trying to tell us today. So in verse 18, it says this, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Once again, there, guys, there's that pattern the angel shows up and says, you're going to do something. Something's going to happen. And the number one command is what? Don't be afraid. We saw this several weeks ago with Zechariah. We see it with the shepherds. And now we see it again with Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, there's a few cultural things about the, the story that we need to understand. First of all, when it came to marriages, it was very common at that time for them to be arranged by the family members. You know, they didn't have like um, the dating apps that we have now, you know, um, and I was going to say Tinder, but that's not really like a marriage app, right? That's a different thing. But they didn't have all that kind of stuff. I'm like, you know, they didn't have that. So like, how do you meet people? Actually, it's interesting, you know, the way technology is going. I was listening to a podcast that say, says that technology has changed the way we even meet people now to where it's becoming um, less acceptable for a guy to just go up to a woman and ask her out in person. It's like, no, you're supposed to do that online. Isn't that the weirdest thing? I was listening. I go, really? Like, you know, the old days are gone when you could just actually kind of woo a woman, you know, and now you have to do it all online. It's just a weird culture that we live in. So, so, so things do change. And back then it was an arranged kind of situation. And oftentimes, the man was typically older than the woman, and sometimes much older than the woman, because the woman could be as young as like 12 or 13. So obviously, because that's pretty young, rather than having these engagements, they would have a period called a betrothal. So if a woman was betrothed to a man, it was a year-long process where they each would live in the home of their parents, and they were not allowed to have any sexual activity with each other. So in the same way we have engagements now where there might be some physical affection, the fact is, at least according to Scripture, that sex has always been reserved for marriage. And of course, the reason for this is because sex is so powerful, and the only social arrangement that can, can contain it is marriage. So when you do it outside of marriage, it just tends to create a lot of problems and degrades the whole situation around it. It causes heightened emotions, possibilities of pregnancy, all kinds of confusion about commitment, and the, the tension between the strong emotions and yet the lack of any kind of serious intention for a long-term relationship and all this kind of stuff. So this is why marriage is that necessary, strong, protective barrier that allows it to flourish and be life-giving as opposed to life-taking. And so it's just how the world works, and God made it that way, and we live outside of that at our own peril. Now that being said, Mary and Joseph, for all intents and purposes, are married. This is considered a marriage. In fact, the only way to get out of a betrothal would be to get a divorce, even though they don't live together yet. And if one of them were to die during the betrothal process, the other one would be either a widow or a widower. It's really interesting because it's not like an engagement. If you know, if your fiance passes away, like that's really sad, but it doesn't mean that you're like a widow per se. So this is the process that Mary and Joseph are in. Now, as we said earlier, when it comes to Christmas, it's a no-go without Joe. It's a non-starter. If he had not believed and obeyed God, as it said in the passage, it would have been an absolute disaster. 
And so one of the things as we kind of come out of the gate here, and I said this last week, and some of you guys latched onto it, and, and I didn't even really mean for it to be a huge point, but it made, it kind of hit at a certain time, and, and I wanted to repeat it again this week because we see it present once again in another character in, our, in the Christmas story, and that is this concept. Your greatest accomplishments in life will come from your obedience, not your talents. They will come from your faithfulness, not your abilities. And you have to remember that. And that's the case with so many people that God uses to do these extraordinary things. It's not because they were incredibly talented or had some great position of power or prestige or they were famous. It's just simply because they looked at a situation that seemed impossible, but then they looked at God and they said, okay. And it was in that where they flourished. It was in that where they achieved. And so this is the case once again with Joseph. And so the question that I want to answer today is what is it about Joe that makes Christmas a no-go without him? What specific qualities can he have? And then as we look at those, can transfer those into our own lives? Because our cause and our purpose can be found in what we see in him. And so if you're struggling right now to say, God, does my life matter? Or how do I create or cultivate a meaningful life? Or how do I lead my family in a way that's going to set them up in the best possible way? Or as a parent, how should I be training my son or my daughter to be able to look for the right person and become the right person? I believe so many of these questions can be answered in the very simple decision that we see Joseph making throughout this passage. And so there's three things I want to share with you. And the first one is this, Joe bears the burdens of those he loves. That's the first quality we can see that is present in him that without him would have made Christmas a no-go because he was a young man who decided to bear the burden of someone that he loved. In other words, he was willing to absorb the weight of the person and then people who would be placed in his care. And what's fascinating about this, and we see this from the scripture, is that everything obviously in Joseph's life is going fine until Mary gets pregnant. And you guys they understand. I mean, here's a guy. He's a carpenter. Some people say he might have been a masonry guy, but let's just say he's a carpenter. And you know, he's got a good job. He comes from a good family and he's trying to do the right thing. And then all of a sudden God comes in and like messes the whole thing up. And this is a big deal when Mary gets pregnant, especially in that culture. And we don't really understand because if it happens now, it's like, well, we're going to get married anyway. And we had a little oops and maybe we can move up the wedding date or maybe we just don't care. And the culture is not going to really ostracize you or punish you or shame you for it. It's just not going to do it here. But back then it was a different story. In fact, one thing to understand is, according to the Mosaic law, or the, the religious law that they lived under, that when he found out she was pregnant, he could have said, you know what, I'm going to protect my own honor, and he could have had her brought out to be stoned. And I don't mean, you know, with um, a weed, <laughs> the weed stone, I mean rock stoned, like killed. So he could have brought her out to have her killed publicly in front of everyone and protected his sense of honor. And it would have been perfectly legal. But he didn't. He didn't do it. And why? 
because the Bible says that he was a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. And this was before God showed up, by the way, because what does it say? He wanted to divorce her quietly. He's like, you know what? Let's just kind of like, I'll, 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 you know, I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but he was unwilling to put her to shame. Huge. You know, one of the problems we have in our culture is we have this word called love and we don't know what it means. You know, I love steak. I love this song. I love my wife. You know, whoa, what are we talking about? And so love is so beautifully expressed here because love says, and what love really should be, is what is best for you. Not even what do you want, but what is best for you. And Joseph asked, what is best for her? Man, we need men in our culture who are going to ask the question of the women around them, what is best for her? Not what can I take from her? We have this issue right now in our society, and they've labeled it toxic masculinity. Have you heard of this? It's all over the place on college campuses. They have classes on combating toxic mas masculinity. And it's this, this effort to control the violence and intimidation that many people feel from, from men because of their words. And of course, we have the, you know, the Me Too movement that was this sparked largely out of a lot of the very inappropriate things that have been done for decades in, in various aspects of our society towards women. And all of this has come from men refusing to act correctly towards women. And so, as we've said before, the culture often does a fine job diagnosing a problem, but a terrible job applying a solution. And so they've come up with this phrase of toxic masculinity, and the idea is, well, the way we can fix this whole thing is if we just take away the edge or the aggressiveness of men to take away their roughness, to make them more tender, to make them kind of more like women. And if we can do that, then maybe women won't be so potentially vulnerable. But it's never going to work. It's not the solution. Because we need strong men, and we need rough men. As this old saying goes, people sleep peaceably in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. But the difference is these rough men have to be willing to love what is good and right, and they have to bear the burdens of those they love. And so the challenge for men today is to get stronger and to become strong physically and emotionally and spiritually, but not simply so they can strut their stuff, but so that they have the capacity then to give their strength away to those that most desperately need it and to be able to protect and defend against that which is wrong, even when they see it in themselves. And so what you see here is this amazing young guy who's just come out of nowhere, and he says, you know, rather than, rather than being someone who's going to showboat my godliness at her expense, he almost takes one for the team. In fact, he literally is ready to take one. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I don't want anyone to know. And, you know, I just, but I, this is the decision that I want to make. We also see him, though, even with that decision, being, being willing to face controversy and questions and gossip. Because this is a shame-based society. And so your honor is everything. And so what does he do? When he finds out that this is what God wants him to do, he immediately takes her into his home. 
because that's what a just man does. He says, she's pregnant. God apparently is telling me that he's the father. That's weird. That's never happened before. That's a strange thing to wrap your mind around. But he takes her into his home because it's what a just man does. And so it strikes me as we look at this, it's like, you know, parents, are we teaching our sons to be just men? Are we teaching them what real strength is? Are we teaching our daughters to wait for and value and identify just men? Not just a smooth talker with a fast car. But it takes more than talking about it. You know, you fathers, and I'm right there with you, man. I got, I got a 17-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter, and they are watching me like hawks. And when I'm, when I'm out of line, I get called out like immediately, right? I mean, I, like, I have no, I have three critics living in my home. Well, four if you count my lovely wife. No, she's not. She's fine. But I'm seeing, but I'm, but I'm telling you, my three kids, man, they are critics. And they're watching me all the time. Fathers, you have to be modeling this by not being passive, but by keeping a watchful eye on the issues in your family. How is your son treating the women. I was just talking to a woman last night who, um, who is a dean at a school around here, and she says, you wouldn't believe it, the disrespect that young men have, especially towards women. And it's so hard. And the battle she's trying to fight to be an authority figure and trying to work, and it's just, it's not happening in the home. We cannot be, as C.S. Lewis said, men without chests. We have to be men with the ability to act on what is right. And women as well, of course. But guys gotta model this thing and women have to reinforce it in the home as well and have to call it out and have to have the strength to be able to do that, especially ladies if you're living in a home where there isn't a father present. This is just reality. Because it doesn't start from anywhere. So you see, again, we see the seeds of character in Joseph from the very beginning and that's a beautiful thing. And so a principle closely related to this is the idea of tending your field, which means cultivating what is yours and yours alone. This concept comes from this book, and you've heard us talk about it before, but it's so helpful, and a lot of you don't know about it, so I'm going to bring it up again. It's a book that's very near and dear to our staff. It's called Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and every young man should have this on his shelf. The reason I want to bring this up, if you have, Christmas is coming, if you have a young man in your home, he should have this on his shelf. You should buy this right now from Amazon, and you should have it shipped and say, Merry Christmas. It is, a, it is an incredible book, and a lot of not only our staff, but the people we're leading and training up have been reading this book as we're trying to build godly men, and then, of course, women as well. And there's, there's parallels here, but I wanted to bring this up because this deals so much with the issue of Joseph in particular. But one of the ideas... Ideas is this idea of tending your field, of taking care of what is yours, of not being passive, but being watchful about it. There's so many people out there that are fired up about changing the world. But as Jordan Peterson says, you know, why don't you just start by making your bed? Tip in the morning and make your bed and then go change the world later. So my life, my, my, the things I'm actually responsible for can be a disaster, but I'm gonna be out there and, you know, um, making the big call that all these things have to change, but your whole, your personal life is in disarray. 
This is so awesome because there's a parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. And you know, sometimes these things are buried and we don't understand them or we don't find them. But if you look at it, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, but we urge you brothers to aspire to live quietly. Isn't that so interesting? Because we're often told, and I do this, I know, because I kind of gift project onto you guys sometimes and like, we gotta be like really, you know, outspoken about our faith and we do. And yet here's Paul instructing the Thessalonian church, live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. What does that mean? Tend your field. Look out for what is yours. And work with your hands. Work hard with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. See, so you have a good witness. So people go, yeah, you say you believe in Jesus, but man, you come in late to work and you don't do anything and you're lazy and your family, you just don't care about your family and your whole life is in disarray. So how can I trust what you believe about Jesus when you can't even tend your own field, right? And I love this, be dependent on no one. I mean, some of us got to like write that down and, and, and tape that onto our bathroom mirror or something or put it on our phone or whatever to remind. This is a beautiful passage because we have this idea that in order to be significant, everyone's got to know my name and everyone's got to hit like on my Instagram, you know, feed and everyone, and I've got to do all this amazing stuff that somehow gets, you know, uh, the attention of all these people. But here he's just saying, look, get up, make your bed, work with your hands and take care of your own affairs. Tend your field, cultivate what is yours. And if you want more, God will give you more but not until you've done a good job with what you have. And he says to be dependent on no one. And just the pride that comes from that, the pride that comes from being able to look and say, you know what, God, I'm able, of course, you give to me. It's not like I did it myself. I mean, my very life comes from you, but I'm able to sustain and have enough, and I did it. I'm not, I'm not being dependent on, on some other outside organization to give me, give me, give me. No, I can have the value and the usefulness to be able to take care of myself and then take care of others. And you know, because of that, and I think about this and I go, you know, I have way more respect for a mechanic or a truck driver who is taking care of his family so that no one else has to and who lives with discipline without all of this drama and everything else. I have way more respect for that guy than some loudmouth, unemployed social justice warrior with a master's degree who can't even take care of his own life. We don't need more of those guys. We need more people who are, who are serious about their life. And so when these opportunities come and God says, listen, I'm gonna entrust you with something, they're ready. And so you see this in Joe, a carpenter who hears and he gets his orders from God, and he wakes up in the morning, and he takes a deep breath, and he goes after it. This is what I gotta do. So secondly, what is it about Joe that makes Christmas a no-go without him? Well, the second quality we see in him is that Joe lives a life of sexual discipline. Sexual discipline. And that actually makes him strong enough, think about this, strong enough to be able to raise the Son of God. And it was like, if God's going to choose an earthly father to be the one to raise his son, to raise the son of God, the one who's going to make the sacrifice for the world, what, what kind of qualifications is it? He's not going to be perfect. He's a human being just like the rest of us. But he exercised sexual discipline. How do we know this? Well, if you look at the passages or the, the verses, he took his wife but knew her not until she gave birth to her son. 
So not only is his wife pregnant, he didn't do it, but he marries her, takes her to his home, but he can't have sex with her until the baby's born. And the reason why, because it says in the passage um, that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So she has to remain a virgin until the baby's born. So there's no question of who the father is. By the way, critics of Christianity love to mock the virgin birth because they don't know why it had to be that way. They're like, well, you know, that's just really dumb. Like, like the virgin birth is like some old fairy tale. But as I've said, and, and because we always have new people coming here, you have to be very well versed in the reason why the virgin birth had to happen. If we, again, if the virgin birth didn't happen, Chris, the whole Christmas story is a no-go as well. And what's the biggest reason? Because we could not save ourselves on our own. God had to intervene. We could not, from our own um, DNA, from our own race, from our own species as human beings, we could not produce someone worthy enough to be a worthy sacrifice for our sins. Without God's loving and amazing intervention into our lives, we would be lost. Also because the Bible has always seen sin as coming through the man. And so in this case, the Holy Spirit intervenes and Mary is pregnant. And it's seen as a miracle. But so you need to know, so when people ask you and they go, well, it's kind of dumb. You say, no, 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 it's actually very important. And it makes sense. And it fits with what we believe. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you got, you got to look at Joseph and it's like, hey, He's like, okay, God, I don't get it. Like, you get her pregnant, and I can't, I can't even, like, that's fine, but now I married her, and like, I have to take her into my home, and we can't do anything for, like, however many months? Like, what are you trying to do to me, God, you know? I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, I would be a little bit frustrated by that. But I remember my wife and I, we've been married for 20 years, and um, remember we got married, and we waited until we got married to, you know, to be sexually intimate and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember, like, the day of our wedding, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, this is, my, this is, her, this is her day and my night. That's what I was telling everybody. I was fired up. I was. I was like, look, man, this is a big deal. It ain't just another day for me, man. This is like the day. This is the big day. So he's a motivator. See, that's the other thing, too. When you wait to, until you're married to have sex, the marriage becomes a great motivator, right? Like, you get married because you're like, dude, we're doing this because we need, we're going to do this. Um, so I'll never forget, because like, we get all, like, we got the reception, I'm like, okay, you know, did the chicken dance and everything, and I'm like, okay, all you guys need to leave, right? You're out of here. Goodbye. Okay, the reception, we're like, how many more, how much longer before we can get out of here? So finally, like, you know, all the relatives leave and whatever, and then we got to go over to the hotel. So we get in the car, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool, you know? And we're driving, and we get to the hotel, and she goes, oh, I left one of my bags back at the reception place. We got to go back, you know? And I'm like, no, because I was all worried that we were going to get, like, a car crash or something, you know, on the way back. Like, like God had cursed me, you know? So I'm driving, like, 105, not that fast, but I was driving all fast down the freeway. Get your bag, you know? And, but it was like, it was one of those things where I was 
like, God, I've been waiting like 24 years, and now this, I gotta wait like another 45 minutes, you know? But it was one of those, it was an exciting day. It was fun, it was awesome, it was great, and there was anticipation. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. And when it's not done like that, it's just become something that, that at best is kind of like, okay, that's fine, and at worst becomes something that you almost have contempt for. Because it's not what you thought it was, because it's not special. Now, I realize that when I say this, a lot of you, I'm making your head spin around. I get it. Because you're like, what is this guy? Where, like, is this guy from like, you know, the 1800s or something? I mean, what's wrong with this guy? But the problem is, if we look once again in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is really good on this subject, it says, for this is the will of God. I mean, look at this. This is like, can't get much more clear than this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which means your holiness. You're fine-tuning the engine. You're becoming what you're supposed to be, right? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Not sex, but sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. So there once again is that tie to the will of God. Like this is God's intention for you. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I say this with like all the love in my heart, and I know this is so easy for people to feel like guilt-ridden, and I'm like, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to like dig up this thing that people have just forgotten about for so long, and the culture's like, well, we should just be able to do whatever we want. And I'm going, but look what it says. I'm just tell- I'm telling you, God's saying, but this is the design for it. That each of you learn how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Look at those words, holiness and honor. Like, is there an honor to my sexuality? Or See, that we've lost that language. Then I know sometimes, I, mean, I think some of us in here are going, this is like a foreign concept. We've lost the language because everything in our culture is saying it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And yet again, as I was telling you, I was listening to this podcast, and they were once again talking about how romance is just dead. Even, and not even in the church, but just in the, in the this was, these were two non-believers saying in the culture today, romance is dead. It's dead. Because they don't know, sex is just dragged through the mud. Sexual discipline is a lifelong practice. And if, if, in other words, if you get it wrong, you can get it right. If you've made mistakes in the past, of course, God forgives. So don't hear judgment for things you can't, you can't change in the past. That's not, I never want you to hear that because that's not helpful. What is helpful is moving from this day forward and saying this is a lifelong thing. So I want to talk to you young people especially because you're never going to get this anywhere else. And you know, my challenge to you, and again, this all comes from just observing the life of Joseph, who brought a woman into his home he was legally married to and instructed not to have sex with her. And he didn't until the baby was born, or, you know, after that whole event. So my challenge to you is this. Be faithful, you single people and you young people. Be faithful to your husband or your wife now. You go, well, but I, I'm not married. Yeah, but you're going to be. You probably would hope to be. So start being faithful to them now. Love them now. Practice not cheating on them now. 
so that someday you can stand before them and say, I've acted honorably and faithfully to you since the very day I realized someday I would marry and I didn't know who you were, but I prayed for you and I kept myself for you because I love you and that was the best thing I could do for you. Now, I realize, I mean, you're like, dude, Tim, you're setting the bar way up here. I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel, I'm just trying to say, those of you that are past that, I'm not, don't hear judgment. I'm t- I, but I got to get into the people that, that, that are the young people that aren't there yet, right? This, this has to be a concept that we have to understand. This is what Joseph did. That person is out there. Live for them now. Conversely, the person that, you're, that you may be in a relationship with now, that's some, if you're not married to them, that's someone else's wife. That's someone else's husband. They will marry someday. And the thing is, that person is willing to say, I will give you the rest of my life. You're not willing to do that yet, either because you can't or you won't. But, you're, but you're, you have no problem taking from them sex with no commitment. Meanwhile, there's someone else that's going to actually commit themselves totally to that person. Don't take what belongs to someone else. It's not yours for the taking. You know, it's so funny being in ministry for, you know, 20 plus years now. 20 years ago when I was saying this kind of stuff, when I was a junior high pastor and we'd have these conversations, it would just roll off my mouth like, yeah. And now it's like, it's like I'm going, wow, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing there's, there's like more and more the culture's just going like, huh? Really? And we, we've got, we, in other words, we can't just say, well, sex is wrong. We have to make legitimate, deep, substantive arguments and reasoning for why I should resist that which is the most powerful thing in my life. So there you go. But that's what he did. And so you see, you see in Joseph's life, you see honor. And, and in that honor, he preserved her honor. And he preserved without a shadow of a doubt This woman was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This was a miracle. I'm telling you, it's hands off, baby. Finally, and this is going to bug some of you, but I'm going to say, I love you. You know I love you, okay? Those of you that are living together and you're not married yet, you're welcome here. I love you. Don't, don't, I'm not, you know, throwing stuff at you. Okay, but let me just say this. Um, My counsel to you is if you love each other, get married. Well, we gotta wait until no, no, no. Get married. Like we'll do it outside. We'll go out in the to the thing. Everybody gather around. We'll marry you right now. Seriously, why not? So we'll do a little wedding ceremony. Why not? If you're living together, get married. Or if you're like, well, we don't want to get married. Okay, then stop having sex. Well, we can't do that, man. Like, well, there's like no one does that. Joseph did. He lived in the same house with her. Didn't have sex. It is humanly possible. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, then just. No, I love you. Just know that, that God, God's calling you to something. God's calling you to a life of honor, okay? And he loves you, and he knows what's best for you. He knows better than you do. So some, some of us, I mean, I, again, I say this with all the love of my heart. You, you're just, you're trying, to, you're trying to like piece together your own level of morality. You're like, well, the Bible says some of this, but I'm gonna kick this out. I'm just telling, and I don't, I, I don't want bad things for you. I want good things for you. God doesn't want bad things. He wants good things for you. Okay, 
This is the third thing, the third reason why Christmas is a no-go without Joe, because Joe imparts identity. See, here's the thing, and this is so huge. Let me just, let me, I try to think of a better way to say it, but I'm like, nah, this is the easiest way to say it. He imparts identity, because it says he called his name Jesus. Now, it was the job as the father to name the child, but it was more than, it was, than a name, it was an identity. You see, while Mary was the mother, Joseph was technically like the stepfather, right? But he was the one who was in the line of David. And the Messiah had to come from the line of David. So because of him, he was the one that gave Jesus the identity of being in the line of David and therefore the legitimacy of rightly being known as the Messiah, the Son of God. Joseph's lineage confirms the identity of Jesus. So if it wasn't for Joe, you would have had a no-go. Now here's the thing, and names are important. He gives them the name Jesus. Names are important, but I was reading in the news, by the way, there was some woman and she's, you know, she's pregnant and she was very mad because everyone in her family is making fun of the fact that she wants to name her son Squire Sebastian Senator as his first name. That's going to be his first name, Squire Sebastian Senator, right? I want and so her whole family is like, that's the stupidest name we ever heard. Don't name him that. And so she got offended, and she canceled the baby shower. And she's like, I can't believe my family. And so they, they made a news story out of this, and people were commenting like, what is wrong with this woman? My favorite comment was this. <laughs> Somebody said, listen, this is going to be the first child ever to be born. Or no, this is going to be the first child to ever run away from home before he's born. <laughs> That was like the funniest thing in the world. But anyway, but it's like names are important, right? And so, the, so he names, because the name has identity and it brings in lineage and heritage and structure. Now here's the deal. I know that many of us in here have dealt with a lot of hurt and disappointment and sadness in our lives. But you have a massive opportunity to change the trajectory of your family. My father is a first generation Christian. My grandparents on, on his side were not believers at all. In fact, they discouraged my dad when he became a Christian and they kind of made fun of him, which is a just completely stupid thing. I can't even understand that. Anyway, some guy um, witnessed to him at a park near his house. My dad's a genius, by the way. He oftentimes will work in the video booth here. He's a retired guy. My dad's a genius. I don't know what happened to me. But he graduated from high school at 16 years old. UCLA Law School grad um, after that. He was an attorney for 40 years, did excellent work. He's been a private pilot for over 50 years. He was given an award by the FAA for like a half a century in flight. I mean, it's crazy, right? He got his pilot's license when he was like 17 years old. His latest venture, he just told me, is he's flying blood and plasma um, from the Goodyear Airport out to places like Sholo and different places to help save lives. He's like, yeah, I'm going to volunteer. So he's flying these, these missions out so that, that, that they don't have to drive and that people can be saved because of this. Guy blows me away. My mother was a second generation Christian, but she came out of a very unhealthy, hyper-Pentecostal, emotionally driven background that, that really messed up a lot of people's lives, to be honest with you. Not that everybody is Pentecostal, I'm not trying to say that, but her strain was particularly, I think, um, damaging. My mother's going to be running point on our foster adoption ministry that we're going to be having here with Christian Family Care, so look out for that because we said the, the church is a battleship, not a cruise ship, right? So look out. So we're going to be talking about foster adoption big time, and my mom's all fired up, but I look at my parents and I go, wow. But the reason I bring this up is because I look at them, and the most important thing that I was, I was able to see, and it's, I'm very blessed for this, was the way that my father treated my mother. And it, it raised the bar so much for me. 
And so here's a guy who, who I think is, is so much integrity and all of his accomplishments don't match his integrity. But my dad had to stand in the gap and say, listen, we're going to raise our children to know Jesus. And we're, gonna, we're not just going to say, go to church, then we're going to live like idiots the rest of the time. We're going to actually try to live as we believe. And I don't know where I would be if we're not, if we're not for them. Some of you have been called to be firewalls between the crap you had to endure in your life and the children you're raising now. Some of you have been called to be the one that holds back the dysfunctionality and the abuse. No, you can't go visit grandma and grandpa because grandma and grandpa are nuts. No, you can't go into this situation because that situation is destructive. Now, those might be extreme. But some of you have been called to raise your children very differently than you were raised. And that's God's called you to, to name your child and give them an identity and a direction and a sense and a calling and a purpose. And so my challenge to you here is this. Aspire to be a Joe. Aspire to be a Joe. See, the reason I call this sermon It's a No-Go Without Joe is because we hear Joseph and we think of this larger-than-life guy. Oh, Joseph, he's this larger than No, he was... His name is Joe. He's Joe. There's Joe and Ben and everybody else. No, it's Joe. You see, we need more men and women who walk away from the lure of the world and its lies. We need more men and women who believe God and take him at his, his, at his word, who see the Bible as the authority, not just a nice opinion of how you could live if you wanted to but they see it as the authority of how to live our lives. So when God speaks, we say, okay. We need more Joes who say yes to God, puts their heads up, get their shoulders back, and they grab the weight, and they go. And they do their job. Joe did his job. No one celebrated his death. No one sees him in a potato chip. No one really cares. No one prays to him unless you're super hardcore Catholic. No one really thinks about all that stuff. You don't make statues of him, really. It's always Mary, 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 Mary. But without him, it wouldn't have been possible. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're somebody that's like, you know what? You, gotta, you just kind of got to kiss all the desire for fanfare and fame and recognition. Just kiss that goodbye and do your job. Because Joe died, and he was buried, and my favorite author, Stephen Pressfield, to grab a line from one of his novels, in an unmarked grave on a hill with no name. But he did his job. And when you do your job, you become more like Jesus, and you radiate his love. I think I might have talked a couple minutes too long, but I hope it was good. Let's pray together. God, it's not too late for anyone in this room. I, it's so hard when we have these conversations because we bring up this stuff that, that seems so foreign. But yet I pray that every single person in this room, it's not too late to capture honor. It's not too late to begin to live honorably and with a sense of holiness and rightness. It's not too late. And we're never going to be perfect. Of course we're not going to be perfect. We make mistakes all the time. God, I confess, I make mistakes all the time. And yet, God, can I aspire to be like you? 
and even emulate the people that you've put in our path. If there's someone here today who needs to know and place their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would. Say, God, cleanse me. Make me holy. I want to be like that guy. I want to be like Joseph. I want to say yes to you when you call me. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to come to you wherever we are. It's impossible to be too far away from you. Thank you for your redemption and your hope and your clarity and your, the fact that you give us new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.